Well, good morning. Today, uh, in my sermon, I kind of want to continue into our, our, our Life of David series, but also for those that have been part of our church and part of our church family, I want to give a little bit of an update of our, our current, our, our family situation and our, our move to Copenhagen as well. And so I'm going to be tackling kind of both things, because for me, the two things actually come together uh, so seamlessly as I was preparing the sermon this week. But we are coming to the end of our series, as Pastor Rich has said, um, and now we are in chapter 23, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to chapter 23. We're going to go through really just seven verses, um, but these seven verses are what is known as the last words of David, and usually when we, when we hear about the last words of somebody, this is the last words as, is, as if they're on their deathbed. They're giving out kind of an exhortation in a way that it's like, I'm passing my greatest wisdom to you. I'm giving you my best encouragement. This is from everything that I've lived and I've learned, and I'm giving you my best. And so when we, we, we see this aspect of this, these are the last words of David, we should pay attention to these words because we need to know, okay, what are what is it that sustained David from the beginning of his life to the end of his life? What is the most important thing for David? As I mentioned, as I prepared this sermon, this sermon began to resonate with me so much because over the last couple of weeks, I was faced and I, I, I was put in a position where I, I needed to deal with disappointment, with sadness. And so although this is... A short passage, it gave me deep encouragement. So we're going to read this, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the passage, uh, into the sermon here. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, Second Samuel chapter 23, starting from verse 1, and we'll read to verse 7. It says this, Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a with hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you today, from here in the house and in our homes, Lord, may your spirit just come and take these words and encourage us the same way that David wanted to encourage the next generations. So, Father God, we just pray, Lord, that we ask for your spirit to fall. We ask for you to come and speak. We just give all our praise and all our honor and all our worship unto you. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as many of you guys know, well, for those that have been with us for a while now, for those that are new with us at the church, you probably don't know this, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory too. Um, in the last four years, um, my family and I have been preparing ourselves to move to Copenhagen to do a church plant with Five Stones. So this assignment was what we felt that, that God had put in front of us, and it's an assignment that we, we said yes to. So in the last four years, we've made two trips to Copenhagen already. We found out that in those two years, in those two trips, that we started seeing there are obstacles for us. Obstacles for us to actually get to Denmark, because to actually move to Denmark and to work in Denmark, it wasn't as easy as, oh, we're just going to pack our bags and move to another country and set up camp there. Our initial thoughts when we first received the call we say, we're going to raise up a team here in Vancouver. We're going to bring our closest friends and our best friends with us to Copenhagen. We're going to start a church plant over there, and everything's going to be great. And in our ideals, that was what we wanted our church plant to look like. In our ideals, we, 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 we even thought about, okay, maybe we could do some social uh, entrepreneur activities like what we do here at, at Five Stones here, open a coffee shop, do some kind of business to bless the city in a way that we were, were, were church, churches haven't done in Denmark yet. But as we started walking down that route, we started finding out that it's actually very, very difficult to get visas to go to Denmark, to get visas to actually land into Denmark and, and to live there a, as a family. And so that team idea kind of began to crumble because we're just like, well, we, if it's hard for us as a family to get there, how are we supposed to bring teams with us where we're going to have to find status for every single family that we bring with us in order for us to actually do anything as we planned? So that started to shift and that started to change. And as those that have been with us um, over the past couple of years, I've heard kind of our updates and what we were doing. And so some of this news is not news to you, but, some, but for us, it was, we, we started to pivot. We're just like, okay, if God's called us there, we need to pivot in the way that we do things. So let's start building some contacts there. So we, we started getting to know people. We started getting to, to uh, connect with people. We connected with ministries here in Canada that were connected in Denmark and figuring out, is there a way that we could work together where we could go through those different ministries, these international ministries to get over there. We looked at Alpha and, and, uh, and how Alpha's already working in Denmark, and we find out that, no, it's not that easy. That even though Alpha is set up in Denmark, it's not as easy as to transfer, because for Denmark, unless you bring in a service that is extraordinary, that a Danish person cannot fill, no visas will be granted. So even applying as a religious worker to, to go through an organization became another dead end for us. That most foreigners that go there is either they're there because their company is an international company that has sponsored them over there and that their skill sets is the only skill sets that can be filled. Or else this, the status that is, that, uh, of people that move there, they're refugees. And the more that we learned about Denmark the more we learn that refugees aren't really treated fairly or with justice. 
And then we started seeing the brokenness of Denmark and it made us even more, it made our assignment even more prominent in that way. We're just like, there's an assignment for us to do. There's something that God is calling us to do. And so how are we going to get there? We had no idea. Every single door seemed to be closing. Every single thing that we would have glimmers of. There was a one point where we found out that we might be able to get my wife and European Union status to get us into Denmark to be able to be in the country under EU status. And we actually found out that even if you go in as an EU status, you can still be jobless because the De Denmark still favors Danes. And so that kind of fell through for us. We, we, we went and did all our homework. We went and, and, and tried every avenue. And out of the blue, when I thought things were hopeless, God drops onto me, just in my prayer time. John, I want you to study more. I'm just like, study more? Okay, like I, I could study. I, I, I love taking courses. I take courses all the time, actually. As, as a pastor, I always take courses to enrich myself. And uh, I was like, sure, I'll, I'll study more. But God's like, no, I want, to, I want you to get another degree. I was like, I have two master's degree and a bachelor's degree. What, what other degree do you want me to get? I'm like, I don't, I don't think there is any other degrees that, I'm like, unless it's in another field, like, what do you want me to do? And God's just like, I just want you to look into studies. So, okay, I have two master's degree. Maybe do a PhD. The thought of doing a PhD was never appealing to me. And I'll tell you why. It's because my mom wanted me to do a PhD. That is the main reason why I never wanted to do a PhD. And I didn't want my mom to be able to say, see, I told you so. So that's wrong motivation, first of all. But second of all, I just never thought that I was smart enough to do a PhD. Master, sure. I, 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 I could do a master's. Master's is like studying it, it, you study, you do the homework, you, you get your master's. But a PhD, you're doing research. You're, you're trying to think of something that nobody else has thought of before, and then you're going to present that to the world. So I was just like, a PhD's not for me. But the more I started to pray about it, the more that it was impressed in my heart. And God pointed me to the University of Copenhagen. Not a school I've ever thought of. Not a school that I would ever think of ever, but I started looking into their faculty of theology, and it just so happened that there was an opening in the faculty of theology in the Department of Systematic Theology, which is the area that I'm most interested in. And as I started looking at the research um, strategies of this department, everything started resonating with me, and I'm like, this is the program that I want to be in, to do a PhD. Never thought I would ever do that. And as I started looking at the research, I felt like this is so catered to me in the way that I think that this is going to be easy to do this PhD because this is everything that God has put into me is about this. So I applied. I did my first application. The school came back. 
I submitted a thesis. They came back. They said, great, we love your thesis. Start your proposal. So I started my proposal. And with the University of Copenhagen, it's different from the PhD programs that we see here. It's not just like you apply. You're part of a cohort. You study with the PhD program. You, you, you learn. You do your side of the research. And then you, you graduate with your, your PhD. No, in Denmark, it's this is our strategy. We have one position for this department. And that's it. It's one position. For the entire research strategy, one position. And so everybody competes for that one position. That means for the Faculty of Theology, there's only five positions that ever opens up, and they open up at different times of the calendar year depending on where their research strategies are. And so, okay, I'm like, okay, let's do this. God, if this is a door that you're opening up for me, let's do it. So over the... When, when I began this application process, this is the when COVID first hit. So this is when pandem the pandemic start first, first, first wave came. I didn't think too much about it because I'm like, I have a year to actually write my proposal. And my proposal isn't like the proposals that you, you hand in for an application here in North America, where it's a couple pages, you, you write a proposal, see if they like it. This is almost a research project in its own. It was a 40-page paper that I had to do for my proposal. I have a full-time job. I have two kids that are, the un under that are a toddler and a baby. And I, so I have to manage my family. I have to manage my full-time job. And I have to try to write this proposal. And so I spent the entire year in my evenings, so after everything is done, after my family has gone to sleep, to write my proposal. So for the whole year, from midnight to two, that was my proposal writing time. I loved it. It was things I was learning. I was getting all these inspiration. God was speaking to me. I was writing all these things. And I thought, this is it. God has finally prepared a way for us to go to Copenhagen, and it's through a student status. started dreaming of all these things and of, of strategies of how I could use this status to our advantage to extend the kingdom of God. As I handed in my proposal in January of this year, it was up to the board to, do, to, to figure out whether I, I was accepted or not. I just kind of put it out there and said, God, let your will be done. I knew there was one other candidate that was going up against me. And so as I started to wait, the faculty started coming back to me and saying, hey, we like your proposal. There's a couple areas here that we would like you to kind of generalize more. You're too specific, so can you generalize this a little bit more? So there was a lot of back and forth in that proposal writing, and, and, and I thought, oh, they like me enough to, to ask me to change things. And so I'm like, okay, let's, let's continue. And come April, they're like, that was basically the end of the deadlines. That was the end of everything. By this point, if I haven't given out my best, that was it. And so between April and May, they were going to make their decision of whether I was accepted or not. For those that know, April and May, there was actually a third wave that kind of hit of the, of the coronavirus. This is when the virus was still not really, the, the, the vaccines weren't, weren't really being distributed properly. There was all these issues. And so the university at the time still 
made a public announcement saying that any new prospective students that are coming into the university, the government will not be issuing a visa for you to enter into the country because they don't see that acceptance into a school is deemed as a worthy, worthy cause for you to get a visa to enter the country because school could be started online. And so they said you could still start school online. So they're not issuing visas. They were scared. They closed their borders. Denmark was one of the most conservative countries in terms of handling the virus. They just completely closed their borders, prohibited people from traveling, um, and, and, and just kept everything closed. And so knowing that, I emailed the faculty. I'm like, well, does this actually affect my application? Does this affect my acceptance? They came back to me. We had a couple conversations. I didn't get anything, a yes or no. I don't know what was going on. And so as I sat there waiting, things started, in my spirit, I started feeling a little bit of doubt. Maybe, maybe it's taking so long because I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Maybe I, it, it came to a place where I, I I got a little impatient with God. I'm just like, okay, we've worked so hard at this. This is four years in the making. And I'm just trying to hear back from this faculty. And I was even on Skype calls with the department head. We talked to HR. We talked to the international students' relationships. I've done everything. And most of these calls, I'm telling you, because of the, the time difference, they don't care what time it is for me as long as it works for them. And so a lot of my calls are actually in the middle of the night with them. It's not even like, oh, it's convenience for me. No, I, I wake up at 3 and look half decent to get onto these Zoom calls for, with them. And, and so I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And finally, an email came from the department head that basically doesn't state anything but the fact that, John, I like your proposal. However, because you cannot enter the country at this time, we're going to have to go another direction. And so they didn't say that they were outright rejecting me, but I knew my answer. And so I forwarded that to Rich, I forwarded that to my wife, and I was riddled with just sadness and disappointment. And then questions started coming through. What was this all about? Why did I have to go through all of this? And at the end of it, I'm left with nothing to hold on to. I felt like I was in a very dark place. A dark place with nothing to hold on to. I put all my eggs into this basket and there's no basket anymore. So as I received this rejection, I was in a headspace where I needed to make a decision. What does this change about me? So before I give you that answer, we're going to look into the passage here because it is so fitting for what I just had to go through. 
It is so fitting because in these last words of David, in which we find in chapter 23, it may seem that as though David was giving his final wisdom, but what David was really speaking of 1,000 years before Jesus came into existence was that David was giving hope and David was giving us his key to what to the joy that he had and that through his line will come a kingdom that will last forever. David was pointing everything in these last words to someone that he did not know even existed yet. And he was pointing it to Jesus. How do we know this? Starting in verse 1, it starts with, Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweetest psalm of Israel. And in the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. David, he says, I'm the son of Jesse. Okay, why is that important? Because David is stating that I am actually not of any, I don't come from a lineage of anything that is great. Jesse was just an ordinary man. He wasn't, he wasn't a person that was of, of royal lineage. He wasn't a person that of, was of high standing. He wasn't a, a person where the community saw him as a leader in the community. Jesse was just a humble man that had many sons. So the fact that David says, I am a son of Jesse, shows us that he knows that I come from humble beginnings. But that I was raised and chosen, and then I was anointed by God to be in this position. That I'm only here because God put me in this place. That God made David king over Israel. So that is, that's how David starts. That's, that's me. This is who I am. That I come from humble beginnings and that the position I am and the posture that I have and everything that I have right now is only given to me by God. That's it. Okay? And then he, he says that when I speak, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David represents God as a prophet of God. So everything that David spoke, is like these are the prophetic words that I have that God is speaking to the nation, but not only to the nation, to for the rest of the world. And what is this prophecy that David speaks about? And what is this, this aspect that David speaks about? We find in Acts chapter 2, as they're talking about the person of Jesus, they're establishing, this is what, in, in, in Acts, they're establishing the new church. They're establishing that Jesus is Christ. He's the head of the church. And in chapter 2, verse 20, starting in verse 29, speaking of David, he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, to David, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That David saw that his lineage is much greater than the physical aspects of his son and the dynasty that he's going to leave behind. That the kingdom that is going to be established is going to last forever. 
that the kingdom that, that is going to come from him is going to be so much bigger. So what is this oath that was spoken of in Acts chapter 2? We find that it is what we see in verse 5. It's the covenant that God made. What was the covenant that God made with David? If we go weeks back, Pastor Rich spoke on this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is Solomon. He shall build my house for my name. And we know that Solomon built what? The temple of God, right? Because David wasn't able to do it. Solomon did it. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of son of men. But with my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house. And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established, what? Forever. Forever. This is one of the most important promises made next to the Abraham covenant. So there's two options that are out of this covenant here that God made with David. The first option is that you will have successors of your kingdom forever or that one of your successors will live forever. So those are the only two options. But what we see here is that David is already pointing to Jesus Christ. Because he knows that, and then we see in history that David's successors, we have great kings and we have really bad kings. And it got to a point where Israel's kingdom actually was exiled and completely taken over. And that the kingdom of David, the dynasty of David actually ended. But really it didn't end. It just went underground. Underground in the sense that it just continued in a lineage where we don't see a physical king until we see Jesus. Because when Jesus was born, Gabriel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and said, to this, said this to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. David knew this. He was prophesying this over his own lineage he was prophesying this over his own dynasty. He knew that this, that everything he lived for, that there was something greater to be seen. Something that is greater than himself, that is greater than his kingdom, that is greater than what God has established in him. He knew that there was something bigger. David is pointing to Jesus. David's successors, as we see, like I said, came to an end. Israel was exiled. But what, where we find that everything points to David is actually in verse 3 of this passage here. Now, verse 3, as we read it, what does it say? It says, 
The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on, and then he goes into, he dawns in like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning. So there's, so most commentaries that I found when we were talking about this really talks about like if you rule righteously in the fear of God, these are the things that, 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 that will come, right? It's not wrong. So I started to dig some more because I just felt like there's something that didn't rest well with me. Like, it can't be that simple. It can't be just about this. And so I started reading, like when I, I start getting into things, I really, I start reading different translations, okay? I read the message, I read the NASB, I read the NLT because wording makes a difference, right? And our English language is so limited that when we translate the Bible, we sometimes miss some of the points. So when we read different translations, it gives us a fuller picture of the language that was used in the Bible because our English language is limited. And so one of the translations I found in the NASB, North American Standard Bible, says this, the God of Israel has spoken to me when one rules over mankind righteously, who rules in the fear of God. David, in this sense, is now not stating this for himself, but he is pointing, making an announcement of someone that is greater to himself than himself. Hear me out here. What David is saying that is saying that this person that he's talking about is the ruler over all of mankind. David is a ruler over Israel. This new king rules over all mankind. That means every single human being on this world, regardless of nationality, of race, of creed, of anything, that this ruler rules over all mankind. Doesn't that give you hope? That every person that you walk out and see on the street, that Jesus is his ruler, that you and me, we know that Jesus is our king and he's our ruler, but that every single person on this world belongs to him. And then he says that they will rule what? Righteously. Now we've already studied the life of David. We know that David is not a righteous man. We know that David has sinned. He is far from righteousness, but who is righteous? Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the most righteous being that there is in this world. And so the, this person that rules righteously isn't David, but he's announcing that the one that is going to rule is righteous. He's so righteous, in fact, that he gave us his righteousness when he died on the cross. And then the last thing is that, that he rules in the fear of God. That the one that rules in the fear of God is to rule one with God. That Jesus is one with God. That the ruler knows who God is. That the, when he rules in the fear of God, that his will is one with God's will. That's what that means. So what David is saying, he's, not, he, he's, saying it's, he's not talking about himself. He's making an announcement of there is someone that is to come that will rule this way. And when that person comes, what happens? That, verse 4, that he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rains that make grass 
sprout from the earth. It's that feeling of renewal, that feeling of newness, that feel, feeling of something that's put right, something that's fresh. I mean, for, for those of us, we, we live in a, a beautiful city, a city that is full of nature, a city that nature is just within the grasp of our fingers. And when we go out into nature, that feeling when we watch that sunset, the dew on the grass, the dew on the trees, that fresh air that we get to breathe, it's that feeling. That feeling that when we make Jesus our king, that this is what comes with it. That the ruler that is to come, that rules over our lives, will bring all of this, this feeling that he is a righteous rule. David is saying that when you have Jesus as your ruler, this is the freshness that comes, the newness that comes, that all salvation and all my delight will grow. And then David goes to contrast this, that it's like, but those that don't live with Jesus as their ruler are like thorns scattered and at the very end, what will happen to them? They will burn with fire. David's last word points you, points me, to the gospel. David's last word and at the end of his days points to a new king that will sustain you, a new king that will refresh you, a new king that will renew you. He does not point to himself as king and what he's accomplished, but he announces a king that is to come that even he himself looks towards. So this is David. David understood that it is the gospel that sustains him. It is the gospel that gives him hope. It is the gospel that gives him joy. That there is something to come for him, but for us living in a new covenant under Jesus Christ, that has already been fulfilled. That we live in current hope and current joy because Jesus has already come. David didn't get to experience what we're getting to experience today. David, didn't, David just was able to foresee that that is to come. For us, this is a reality for us. So even more so, what sustained David should sustain us even more. This is what I had in order to process my rejection from the University of Copenhagen. This is what I needed and what I knew in the dark place that I was in. The night that I received the, the email, before I even received my rejection letter, I just found myself in a very dark place. And Steph came down and she, she was already actually in bed when I, but I forwarded her the email. Somehow she saw the email. She comes downstairs. She gives me a hug and she's just like, how do you feel? And I was like overwhelmed with sadness. I'm just sad. I'm sad because I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I'm sad because I feel lost. So as my wife comforted me and as I started beginning to process, like I said, I found myself in a dark place with nothing to grasp. 
But then I reminded myself that God loves me and that Jesus sees me. And when I reminded myself of that, I was still in that dark place, but I was in that dark place with Jesus. And so even though I had nothing to grasp and I had nothing to hold on to and nothing to reach out to, figuring out what's next, I knew that Jesus saw me and that he was beside me. That's all I knew. That at the foundation of who I am, I saw God's grace, I saw his mercy, and I saw his love. That I have no clue what I'm supposed to do next. That in so many ways, the feelings of failure comes falling and crashing down onto me. I knew that Jesus said, I still see you. I still got you. And it doesn't matter what you do because who you are is that you're a son of God. So the gospel is there. The gospel is that, that he loves you, that he sees you. That even in a place of disappointment and failure, that this is only a small part of a much bigger story. That even this feeling that I have in my personal walk with Jesus is only a small part of what God's will in my life is. And that I could continue to trust him more, that I could fully place my plans and, my, and all my ambitions in his hands. That is what the gospel is. Tim Keller says this. He says, let the gospel sink so deeply down in you that it changes your views and even the structures of your motivation. Let the gospel sink so deeply in you that it changes your views and the structures of your motivations. That the motivations are no longer my motivations, but the motivations are that of the kingdoms. And that the motivation is that of Jesus and what God has willed for me to live out. And that my life, the life that I live and how I choose to live is motivated by what Jesus did on the cross. David knows this is true. I know this is true. You also know that this is true. So we need to live in a way that shows that this is true. That even in a dark place where you don't know what to hold on to, that you still need to live knowing that the gospel is true in your life. What does this mean for me now? I don't know. It's only been a month. And I continue to have these conversations with Pastor Rich. And I continue to seek the counsel of those that are around me. But what I do know is this. Is that when God says go, we will go. It's funny because a couple weeks ago, when we had a red carpet prayer, Deborah called out for those that feel like they're in the dark or feel like they've, working, they've been working towards something and it's not coming into 
fruition. I just, I was just like, well, God, you're, you're, you're speaking directly to me right now. So I went to prayer, and Ida and Ruth were in the prayer room um, to pray for me. And so I shared with them a little bit of what was going on. And Ruth gave me the weirdest vision or the weirdest encouragement. He said, Joseph was in prison and overlooked for seven years. And she said, I don't know if that's an encouragement for you, but do you know what that did for me is that freed my spirit. When he, she spoke that, it freed my spirit because why? I know the ending of Joseph. That even though he was overlooked in prison, that God established him. So in this feeling that I feel like maybe I was overlooked, that God will continue to establish me. That's why I had hope. That even a prison story of being overlooked was a huge encouragement. It broke me out of this place of what next? Joseph was in prison in a dark place for a very long time before God established him. I don't want that. I don't. I mean, who would? But it gave me hope. Because I knew that God established Joseph. So what do we continue to do? I will continue to walk out my calling. A calling to plant churches. A calling to make Jesus known. A calling to establish his kingdom. And to encourage the church to do the same thing. That there is always hope. That there is always joy. And that we are all part of this story in proclaiming who Jesus is. That is my job and that is your job as a church. So what are we going to do? Well, I have some great ideas. So if you want, come talk to me. I feel like this church is just beginning to blossom. And so church, are you willing to walk this with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you for your words. We thank you for the covenant that you made with your people and your church. Father God, that as we look at how, what sustained David, that we too draw from that same place of, of that you are our king, that you are our ruler, that you rule over our lives, and that you know exactly what we need to establish us as your people. So, Father God, may we live a life to make you famous. May we live a life that is righteous in your sight. And, Lord, may we continue to walk out your will in our personal lives as well as walking out what the church is set out to do. So, Lord, we thank you. We give all praise and honor to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to really uh, gather myself, make these closing comments. I know that you can sympathize with John as a pastor and all that he went through. But for me, uh, because I'm a pastor, I know it's like to have aspirations to start a church and to put that much heart 
and effort into it and to see it not work out the way you anticipated. Uh, when I first heard from John, I just cried with him. And now I'm crying even more because I could not be more proud of John. This is what leaders do. We suffer. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And that was the sign of his sonship. A lesser man would have buckled or given up on Jesus. God's disappointed me. I gave it all for him. He didn't come through for me. What is this faith all about? It's worthless. It's a big deception. That's not what John did. And maybe in God's divine orchestration, him having to study this passage and David's last words. It's all part of the saving, comfort, grace that came upon John. And the message that is now in John's life has immeasurably enriched him. And he'll be able to preach the gospel and bring glory to Jesus in a way that not many of us can. The road is not clear what's ahead, but this I know is that God is pleased with John. And, uh, and John may have not gotten a Ph.D. from the University of Copenhagen, but he certainly got a Ph.D. from the University of Heaven. And that's the most important part. So, Jesus, we thank you for a real-life example of the gospel incarnated. We don't just preach it. We don't just proclaim it, but Lord, you make us live it. And so we thank you, God, for this gift of John. We thank you for his faith, but we do pray, God, for a deep, deep comfort to continue to cover him, to be with him, to sustain him and his family. John, I just heard the Lord say that even as David's generations continued in the earth, so your generations are going to continue strongly in the earth. Many generations, out to the 10th generation, God will have a witness through your line. So God, we, we thank you for your purpose ahead of time that we can't fully see. And we trust in you. And thank you that you've raised up John and that you are immeasurably pleased with him, God, because of his faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we know, God, he's bringing you pleasure today. So, dear ones, those of you that have heard this message, I pray that you take it to heart. I pray that it puts a rod in your back, that you will forever be committed and forever live for the glory of God that nothing can dissuade you from following Jesus with all your heart. Come hell or high water, you will be faithful with Jesus to the end. So Lord, let your grace come, let your glory come. We know that greater things are ahead for us as we've sung. Spirit of God, have your way in this hour. We give you praise now. Amen.
Amen. Blessings to you all. We'll see you next week, and hopefully we'll be together sooner than later.